Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this, the fourth episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Michael Smoridge, and joining me today are Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidester, Steve Cheney, and TQ. Uh, let's just start off this episode by asking everybody what they've been up to in the last week. Johanna? <laughs> so I would love to say that I've done a lot of um, HEMA stuff, um, but I don't think I've done anything at all. So... Oh, um, our restrictions in Austria, so for Corona, got lifted. So I've been spending a lot of time outdoors with friends, um, doing stuff I haven't done for months. But I've, I haven't done much research. Well, um, it's not that true. I think I found two more things about Hans Mädel or Hans Mendel, or at least that one person I think I am tracking in Salzburg. Um, so I found a, one of them is an account of a person called Johannes or Hans, um, a shearmeister, so a fencing master who died um, in 1503. It's just, I'm not sure if it's the one, so it's, it's not clear. Um, but if it is truly the person, so the Hans Miedel, that would put him much, much earlier than I would have expected. I'd love to find out more, but I'll just have to see. Um, apart from that, I haven't done anything HEMA-related at all, but I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, Michael Chidester? Well, I finished the manuscript trawling that I, was, I mentioned last time. After going through close to 6,000 manuscripts, I found about maybe 1,500 interesting miniatures of which 173 were sword and buckler guys. So I posted those guys on the uh, the Wicked Hour Director Facebook page in a nice little album for future reference. Oh, and I've also got an exciting new alchemy interpretation that I guess we'll cover in a few weeks, but that was a whole interesting process, which mostly owes it to, I owe a lot to uh, Travis Mann for that, but it'll be fun to go over that section. And that, I think that's about it for me. Cool. And Steve? I made a chart of like uh, Zettel and Lichtenauer related masters, and I put lines between them with um, all speculation, of course, because we don't really know anything, um, with how they may have had direct transmission with each other, or they may have possibly influenced each other through texts. And yeah, it was mostly, I mostly did it because of um, Johanna's Hans Madel thing and how like Hans Seidenfaden and Hans Madel and Hans Madel student were like a line that might have existed. And then I just kind of went crazy from there. Also, um, we talked about the, uh, this is another thing that Johanna did that she didn't mention is the uh, Fechtlied of uh, the uh, Rusner. I don't know how to pronounce that, sorry. Rusener. Rusener. <laughs> All right. Kristoff Rusener, I believe. Right, yeah, exactly. And um, it says it goes with a particular uh, tune, and Johanna found the tune and like all that stuff, and we were looking at it, so might not expect a performance soon, but something interesting that we've been working on. What is the effect, Steve? What is it? Yeah, for the viewers at home. It's basically a song about fencing, 
and it mentions like a whole bunch of stuff that we recognize from like the uh, KDF stuff. Sweet. Are we going to be able to use it as our intro music? Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> so. I doubt it. <laughs> but we'll see. I'm sensing a little bit of disagreement here. Okay, fine. <laughs> I think we totally should, but I'm not having to play the music. Um, It'd so, be way too long of an intro. <laughs> <laughs> if we use the whole thing, sure. Um, so I've been spending a bit of time looking at some of the evidence around messers and the reasons for the development and origins of messers, um, trying to chase down which bits are... Um, there's a lot of kind of common stories in the HEMA world about why messers were a thing and trying to chase down which of these have any support to them and which of them don't. Uh, and I is have is this like the messers were popular because they weren't swords, so you were able to carry them in cities type thing? Yes, exactly, that kind of stuff. Um, there's very little evidence for that particular one. And in fact, at least one city uh, weapons law, which explicitly excludes messers as well as swords based on size. So... Good luck there. Um, um, uh, but okay, uh, I, I won't force you to divulge all your secrets. No, I'm just, I'm still just digging. Um, Maciek Talaga dug up an interesting, showed me an interesting paper, which is still in Polish, and I need to get someone to or get a rough translation of um, about uh, guild arguments about the right to make weapons. Um, and apparently, the sword, the sword makers were getting in on the knife makers business uh, and got sued for it. So that's an interesting reversal of the usual story as well yeah that, that's a reversal of the the normal explanation isn't it exactly so interesting stuff cool i've been up to not very much because i've been back to work brilliant shall we go back to the section of the zettle that we ended on last week with lots of opinions and spend a little bit more detail on that so this is the the section on the before and after the boar and nash so, Steve, would you like to kick us off with Harry's translation in the English? Sure. For and nach, to these two things, the whole art owes its origins. Weak and strong, the word indes remember hereon. You can learn, then, with skill to work and defend. If you easily fright, you won't ever learn to fight. Thank you very much, Steve. Johanna, could you give us the, the German? Ah, yes, of course. So, <clears throat> vor und nach, die zwei Ding sind aller Kunst ein Ursprung. Zweck und Stärk, in das das Wort damit merk. So magst du lernen, mit Kunst arbeiten und wehren. Das schrickst du gern, kein Fechten nimmer gelernt. Thank you very much. So, yesterday we, TQ, I think, uh, laid out his explanation as to what these mean. They come from the the kind of terms and the the way of understanding a sequence of actions comes straight from Aristotle. It could mean like prior and posterior as well, but the sequence of one thing happening before the other. Uh, T, could you just outline your theory, your explanation for us again? Sure. So the, the brief version is that the way I teach people about this is based on space and direction of movement, not so much based on time. So I teach people that vor is moving a movement for an opening, like a cut thrown towards an opening, or a thrust towards an opening. And nach then is chasing after the sword. So if somebody goes for your opening, you have to move your sword after their sword to prevent it from touching you. Um, and this gives you 
implicitly creates a sense of timing because whoever goes for the opening first obliges the other person to go off chase after the sword but it doesn't the direction of movement is the the kind of the core of it and then this fits weak and strong are the two halves of the blade um and indes becomes a transition from either defensively a transition from chasing after the sword to moving for an opening or offensively a change in direction as you change from one opening to the next um, so it all be, it all ties together very very nicely. Um, I have a class I teach about this, which we can throw the notes up in the uh, the podcast description or something. Sweet, thank you very much. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so weak and strong are, are probably the easiest bits to understand because we're given a, a very practical explanation of there's the blade. Bit towards the tip is the weak. Bit towards the hilt is the strong. Any disagreement for anyone there? No, brilliant. Sure, I'll disagree then. <laughs> okay, thanks, Steve. Uh, you're welcome. Um, so I'm currently playing about a bit with an idea where the blade is actually in three pieces, not two. Um, what the glosses tend to say on weak and strong is that from the hilt to the middle is the strong, and from the middle to the point is the weak. Um, and so you could arguably read in a third middle section that is neither strong or weak. T, I told you that like two years ago, and you flat out disagreed and said I was completely wrong. I know, but that was two years ago. Um, and now I'm, the reason I'm coming back to it now is because I'm gluing the idea of hard and soft, which are used a lot in the description of plays, into being a characteristic only of that middle section. Interesting. I was going to just put in a disagreement in that, that, that the parts of the blade is how it is defined typically in the RDL glasses, which is our main subject here. But it's worth pointing out that. 3227A doesn't really distinguish clearly between hard and strong and between weak and soft, and in fact typically uses both words whenever it's talking about either one. So in that text, they're treated as being basically synonymous. And there's also, in the text, um, in the text of RDLN, there's a concept of a weak parry versus a strong parry that I think is unrelated to weak and strong of the blade as well. and what those two parries are and what they mean is a matter, an open question that I think there's been disagreements about, but they certainly describe then actions that don't seem to be referring to the part of the blade as being weak and strong. Maybe. I think you can read it either way. There's also like uh, strengthening with the long edge is something that we see a few times. Yes. I don't think there's weakening, but... Maybe there is. Oh, there's weakening the masters, I guess, but that's more metaphorical, probably. Are you sure? I'm not sure. That's why I said probably. Could it be that there was a bit of contemporary confusion about weak and strong, hard and soft as well? I mean, it's worth it's worth keeping in mind always, always that these people were just writing in their everyday language, and so words mean lots of things, and we like to make words mean one thing, which I think is not how they approached it. Well, in the in the Zettel itself, we see um, actually two lines, and not very many things get two different uh, lines in different places that say the same thing. But they say, um, um, "Sense only," or to paraphrase, um, like "sense only hard and soft," or yeah. Mm-hmm. So, just so like when you're feeling, the only things that you're looking for are hard and soft. Only those two things. And they don't. Then the the zettel itself never really says to sense strong and weak. Okay, so 
we could make an argument based on the zettel itself that weak and strong are properties of the sword, but hard and softer qualities felt in the bind or sensations in the bind. Sure. This is why I split them to being things which only happen in the middle of the blade, because like it doesn't really matter how hard you're pushing with the tip of your sword on my sword. I can just push straight through it, right? Um, if you're pushing weak, then hard and soft become less relevant. Whereas in the middle of the blade, hard and soft are more relevant. And then right down at the strong again, they're a lot less relevant. I can't push through the strong, even if you're not really applying any pressure. Well, it, so if you're in a bind, if you like go into a bind and you close your eyes, then there's the, the only thing that you can feel is whether you can move or not, whether you can move the other person or whether you can't move the other person. So to me, like that's that's kind of the idea of hard and soft. There's also strong and weak that we have to understand, but if you're trying to just use like your tactile feeling in the in the bind, it's just hard and soft. There's no you know, you're not gonna sense any idea of strong and weak. Well I'm gonna be annoying and disagree with you, Steve. Okay. I'm gonna say that when you're in the bind the only feeling that you have is whether they're pushing against you or not, and then whether if you push, they yield or they don't. Well, I think Steve is talking about when you're in the bind and applying some pressure to their sores. So if they're, at that point, you feel what they're doing, even if they aren't really pushing against you. It's like feeling a wall, right? The wall doesn't push back, but you can still feel it. Yeah. Well, it does push back, doesn't it? Uh, depends <laughs> on your... So to me, like the, 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 them pushing back, that situation would just be the same as, no, I can't move them. If the question is, can I move them or not? Then if they're moving you, then the answer would be, no, you can't. Okay. Uh, Johanna? I don't know. I was just agreeing with Steve. Um, but I like the idea of T um, parting the sword into three um, parts. So on the other fencing masters who do that, so I'm thinking of I forgot his name. Was it Johann Andreas Schmidt? So the uh, 17th or 18th century fencing masters. Um, I think he wrote a, a manual about wrestling as well. And he seems to like um, part the body, the human body into not only um, weak and strong or, or schwäche und stärke, but also um, like half strength or half strong. So he doesn't only... You see four-way splits like that a bit in some of the later rapier stuff as well. Um, right. Hoistler like... has the half-weak and the half-strong. In fact, oh, he, contrasts, he contracts the, trusts the German and the Italian, I think, specifically, and he says, we Germans divide the blade into strong, middle, and weak, but the Italians divide it into four parts, and he, oh, labels, cool. and he labels them strong, weak, half-strong, and half-weak, and he has like two little diagrams. I think Meyer might also do weak, middle, and strong, but I have to go back and check. I think he does. My friend Andreas Engstrom has an original Swedish instruction saber, like a, a, a fencing instructor's saber from the army. Um, and it's mar it has brass inlays in the blade uh, to define the difference between the strong and the weak, uh, the strong and the middle, and the middle and the weak. Um, uh, like Ooh, that's, that's like a Victorian era one? Yeah, Victorian era. Um, Swedish instruction fencing saber. Um, interestingly, because it's a one-handed saber, they're actually they've put the markings in different places on the two sides of the blade. 
um, because your grip is not symmetric. So the the way you can resist pressure changes depending on which side of the blade it's on. Hmm. Uh, and eventually, aren't there also like Spanish distressor sources that divide the blade into sixteen parts? Sixteen. Oh, yeah. Thibault definitely what? has twelve. Yeah. Um, wow. Thibault only had ten. Maybe I thought he had. There's a lot. I thought Tibalt maybe Tibalt might have ten on the blade, and then like the hilt has two oh, yeah, as well, yeah, or that, something. That sounds true. Well, again, he and he tells you that the way you can learn how to bind effectively is by con- considering which tenth of your opponent's blade is on which tenth of yours, and then doing arithmetic to decide who has the strength and who has the weakness. Yeah, that, that section is funny. I think I'm a lumper, not a splitter, and so I like two bits of the blade. That's- <laughs> That's about as much as my nothing can I'm handle. Like <laughs> I'm I'm remembering something, and this is, I'm going to throw this out as a curiosity, not as a fact. But I I saw a talk that a swordsmith gave a long, long time ago, like long enough ago. It might have been Paul Champlain, even who uh, who was giving it, or maybe early Peter Johnson work, where he suggested that the um, the parts of the blade were emergent properties of the handling of the blade, and marked the strong as being specifically the point of balance to the guard, the middle as the point of balance to the um, vibrational node in the blade, and the weak as the vibrational node to the point. So every sword has different sections that are strong, middle, and weak based on where those points line up on the blade. And you have to learn uh, in what the sword you're handling where they are to use it most effectively. I thought that was an interesting way of understanding the the physical actions involved, although I'm not sure it's what they were thinking of originally, at least not intentionally. It's certainly true that from the guard to the point of balance is where you're going to parry the strongest, and from the sort of sweet spot to the tip is the weakest part, but beyond that... Doesn't 3227A have the idea of a little window by the hilt where, like, your parries are strong, but also it's much harder to display, like, you can work tricky thrusts in through there? He, He says in the changing through that you should aim for the little the gap or the window between their cross and their arm, I think. Yeah, so if you if you draw like a little triangle, pretty much the width of the cross guard going up to the blade, um, uh, then that's actually very close to the size of the point of balance. Hmm. Well, a lot of times there's, there's not very much distance between the guard and where the point of balance is. So that would be a very small area that you could effectively parry in if that were the case. Well, it's a it's like super effective parries, but that's about the size of the strong section on the Swedish instruction sabers. It's only a few inches right at the base. And I mean, if we go weak, middle, and strong, no one said you can't parry in the middle. It just isn't as strong as parrying on the strong. Right. If you divide the blade into two halves, then obviously none of that matters, and you have a weak half and a strong half. But when you get into the middle, then the extent of the middle is an interesting question, at least philosophically. I suppose. Okay. Just quickly, Johanna, can you remember how Mayer divides the blade? It's a later source. Not really. <laughs> okay, not sorry. All right, then I'm going to yeah. move us on um, to the next bit of this section, which is the the word indes. Meanwhile, so we're pretty sure that indes means. Is the method by which you change from being in the knack to the vor? Is that right? That's actually kind of arguable. Um, yeah. Uh, Johanna, do you want to go first? Uh, um, 
Well, okay, I can I can tell a story because I remember we've been talking about this or a, a similar topic in the last episode. And just afterwards, I went to my, or I, I texted my club members and I texted them the idea um, T told us, so about the four and the nach being just the, um, the direction of the blades. And we've argued <laughs> for a very long time about four and nach and in des. And I think what, what T says, it's quite cool and I really like it. So, but now to Indes. So for for my club, Indes was always um, not the the technical term. It is used um, in the in the sources. So we always used Indes um, just as it is used today, because um, in modern day German we still use the word Indes, not as commonly, <laughs> but you you can use it, and people should understand it if you use it. And it, uh, it, it means just meanwhile. So it's a word for um, if something happens at the same time as something else. So just meanwhile. But um, the thing is, in the, in the sources, um, the word indes means far more than that. Or at least I think it does, because I don't know. Um, and we've... We've never interpreted indes as a um, as the term that also needs fühlen, um, because fühlen is another term that's used there, and um, it says that um, indes and fühlen are basically one thing, and they can't go without the other. And it's well, it's it says that indes is. When, when the two swords bind. So in the bind, you're supposed to feel um, if it's hard. Oh, no, not hard. Oh, yeah, if it's hard or soft. Um, and then act accordingly. But you need to feel first. So in death, need to bind. Um, that was um, the reason for our um, argument. Um, and I'm quite interested to what you have to say right now. Okay. Does anybody want to pick up on that? Um, so I was just going to mention that I feel that um, the way that Indes fits in is really the strength of the of those um, definitions of four and nach that uh, T gave last week. You know, aiming for the opening versus aiming for the weapon because it facilitates um, Indes to simply be um, a transition from either aiming from one opening to aiming to another opening or from aiming to um, the weapon if you're in the knock to aiming towards the person. So, yeah, that's what I wanted to mention. I don't necessarily see the value in describing it as a transition of anything to anything else. It seems to me that the text describes it as actions that have that arise from the action of the of feeling and so you're not necessarily it's a response you're not trend you're not changing what you're doing it's more of a decision process and the thing that you do based on pressure is an action in des so i see it as more of a descriptor than like a distinct something i i agree with that i think it's a little bit of, well not a little bit i think it is both um so i think 
you know, we're told when you enter a bind, you have to feel soft and hard. And when you felt soft and hard, act indes and, you know, do what you have to do. So indes is, you know, the, the I guess, the immediate time it, it, that it has to take for you to, like, figure out what to do based on your feeling. But um, by doing that, you're... Um, the, the goal in that action is to do the transition and it's to either transition from uh, one opening that's been blocked to the next opening or if you're in the Nach um, from defending to attacking. Cool. There's an interesting difference in some of the gloss around this stuff where about the idea of going from Nach to Vor, um, where Danzig and Lou and Lev uh, Nikolaus or whatever, sorry, pronunciation, um, tend not to say much about, they talk about like breaking their vor. In particular, Danzig is like, you know, when they come before you go after, then go indes to the opening. Um, uh, you, you know, when they come before you go after with the parry and then from the parry go indes to the opening. Um, and then you've broken there before with your after. Uh, whereas Ringek talks about um, taking the before, seizing the before by doing this. Um, and it's a little bit of a different, a slight difference in how it's described. Um, one of them becomes more of a model where you treat them as for and knock are a property that are always extant in the fight in the exchange. So either one person or the other person is always being forced to go after the sword. Um, well, the other one treats them a bit more as being a thing which happens strictly before and up to the point of the bind. Uh, so, vor and nak happen before we bind, and then once we bind, indes happen. I do. I want to do indes, and I shift at that point to it just being about weak and strong, um, and hard and soft and fulin. Uh, and vor and nak become a lot less emphasized after the blades have come together. Right, which is interesting because the uh, the perspective that it's Seeking the sword versus seeking the opening sort of requires foreign knock to be continually in play. Um, no. I don't think that's necessarily true. Someone is always seeking the opening, so that means someone is always in the four. Sure, but doing uh, or, that, or neither person is, in which case you're all just flailing in the knock. But I think it's a matter where you could you could still apply it, but you could also say that it becomes much less important versus weak and strong once you've begun to engage in a bind. Yeah, it, it is interesting that in Danzig, at least, there's no indication of seizing the four, which is, the I think, the, the popular Hema expression, um, the way there is in Ringek. So there's a sort... And I don't know that it is actually a difference in interpretation at all, because it's all the plays tend to be very much in line, um, but it certainly is a difference in description that might possibly be meaningful. Um, certainly at some point, someone chose to use a different word in that sentence for whatever reason. Um, but I've typically approached it as the person in the Nakh is still in the Nakh um, until the fight resets or something else happens. But going from four to Nakh doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to me personally, and from a timing perspective. Um, so from the physical openings perspective, then the opportunity to seize the four makes a lot more sense. As opposed to being in the after and countering your opponent with your after. Well, you can counter them with your after, but you to do that, you first engage their blade, and then you indes 
you you change target and end up targeting their opening and that w- that puts you into vor because now you're targeting their opening um you end up with mm-hmm. something in some ways analogous to priority and modern fencing just to set up steve there <laughs> go for it let, let, let's let's pick up this right of way idea Hold on. Before that, I was going to say I think Hans Madel, who takes a lot of cues from from Ringek, and maybe we should start saying the Hans Madel students class, but I'm not going to say that. But it it may not be written been written by Master Hans Madel, but he pseudo Hans Madel. Yeah, in a lot of places <laughs> in the gloss, he inserts the idea um, that it's okay to wait upon the after, um, and there are places where it tells you where the Ringek gloss will tell you to. Go before your opponent, and Hans Madel is quick to say if that's what you want to do. So he's much um, more comfortable and easygoing with the idea that maybe being in the after is fine, and maybe that's the best way to beat some people. Whereas the RDL glosses seem to be much more convinced that the four is the better option. That's the secret missing text <laughs> that they purposefully left out of RDL. Clearly, yes. Um, so are we moving to, um, I guess, initiative and right of way then with this conversation? Is that where this is going? I guess we should probably talk about it a bit. Initiative is certainly a very common, one of the very common framings you'll see used to describe uh, Vornak in HEMA discussions is an idea of initiative, um, where like the person in the Vor is the person who's controlling the fight and the person in the Nak is the person who's reacting. Um, and that leads to some interesting, um, interesting parallels interesting conclusions like the idea that giving an invitation is being in the vor because you're like controlling what they're doing right obviously i disagree with that (laughs) obviously so do i but i figured it's worth mentioning because everybody talks about it so is now a good time to explain priority and right of way a little bit given that many people in human misunderstand it that might be useful if we're going to talk about it Sure, maybe we could actually do something useful with this podcast. <laughs> Can't we just argue about German words? <laughs> <laughs> That's what the KDF Discord is for. <laughs> yeah. All right, so so the idea of priority or right-of-way is a concept in modern Olympic fencing um, in two of the three disciplines. Epe doesn't have it because Epe is the best. I mean, wait, what? So Bias. <laughs> bias. <laughs> Um, so it came out of the French school of foil fencing, I think it's fair to say, or small sword, if you want to make that distinction. The earliest mention of it, I believe, is Labat in like the 1700s, but I'm sure someone will correct me when we put this to press. Yeah, so so that's pre-masks, isn't it? Yes. Um, so the idea is that if you're being attacked and you counterattack, and both touches land, you've messed up. You need to deal with the incoming threat before you attack back. Otherwise, you've made a mistake, and you don't get the reward for that. Yeah, the idea is basically that if one person attacks and the other person counterattacks, and both people get hurt, the person who reacted with an attack messed up more, and therefore the other person gets the point. So it's it's ultimately a method for resolving double hits. Yes. Um, it's not anything bigger than that. And that's probably the single biggest thing people misunderstand about in HEMA. You'll see so much discussion where people assume that if you don't have priority, you can't score. 
And you can totally score with that priority. You just have to not get hit while you do it. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that probably this, this came about in order to make training thrust fencing safer. Almost certainly an aspect. Because counterattacks get real messy and people died getting jabbed in the eye all the time. So, so this idea of there being a, a priority in fencing uh, carries through to the current day. It's how Foil and Sabre are judged. And Hema loves to obsess about double hits and whose fault it is and whether it's martial or not. And for example, the, the Nordic fences, I'm thinking primarily of the famous swordfish here, they resolve this by emphasizing whose attack was to a deeper target, whose attack was better, basically. So if there are two hits that land, one of them lands on the head, one of them lands on the foot, well, the person that hit the head gets more points. But there are some some places which have gone for a different approach. I'm thinking of the old Parasima Open and Trinava in Slovakia that have instead gone for some kind of right of way. So in the long point rules, which are run in various events in North America, it's judged based on who's hit lands first uh, and primarily, but with the, with the expectation that only the person who strikes first has the ability to score is another way to run things so that this, the call it the subtractive after blow sometimes, which ultimately means that the, it falls on the person who was attacking first to not get hit, but also the person who gets hit first doesn't have an expectation of scoring. Yeah, we, we can talk about lockout timers and then... So I, I think what you're describing, Michael, I'll describe as a, a soft right-of-way. I think it's subtly and importantly different, actually. Um, okay. Because the um, uh, the long point structure and most of the subtractive afterblow structures, if somebody is doing a long attack, so they make a, a big step with a, with a long thrust from a long distance or something, their attack has started, but the opponent can tag them on the hands before the attack lands, and the opponent ends up being the person who's counted as making the first touch, uh, and then scoring the full points. or the lesser points if it depending on the exact details of the scoring and subtraction. So you there's a difference between giving the first touch points and the second touch deducting from it, and giving the first attack points and the second attack potentially deducting from it. Yeah, that's fair. Um my my main point was that you can have a, a weighted afterblow format where let's say one person hits the head, they get three points, one person hits the arm they get one point. There's two ways to, to work that out. Either the fence that hit the head gets two points, or the fence that hit the, hits the head gets three, the fence that hit the arm gets one. Yeah, that's also a... But that basically just changes how fast your match yeah. is at. Yeah, so, but I'll, I'll describe that as the difference between um, subtractive after blow or not. Whereas, to me, this long point rule set sounds a little bit more like a soft right of way. But it depends on how you're judging it. I mean, ultimately, all afterblow rule sets are a way of assigning priorities. So it's not necessarily a difference of kind. It's just a difference in implementation more than anything else. Everybody's upset, really concerned with the idea of who's at fault when a double hit is occurs. 
And all these rules are just ways to try and determine that and punish the right person. So if we can go back to the um, to the foreign knock uh, <laughs> that we were talking about before and connect this to priority. So what? So what we have in like the as the descriptions of the foreign knock. I'm going to paraphrase. Basically, if you are in the before, you are attacking first, so that your opponent must parry. And then we're told to um, work uh, nimbly, I guess uh, some sources say in deaths here, uh, to the next or to the, like to the nearest opening after they parry. And then if you're in the Nach, the other person attacks first so that you must parry. And now you're supposed to work nimbly in deaths, maybe to gain the four, depending on what source you're looking at, or to break there before. So if you if two people are fighting each other and they're both trying to follow these rules and one person attacks and one person parries. Now we have a situation where the right thing for both of them to do is to just attack each other. And how do we resolve that? How do we resolve that issue of, um, are they like, is this a system that is built for doubling or how do you guys resolve it? I know how I do it. So that's an interesting question, actually. Um, and you've unpacked it in a different way to the way I was expecting you to. Um, the answer I'd give off the cuff is to that in the bind you end up with, because of weak and strong and the asymmetry there, um, it's probably not going to be the case that both parties can directly work immediately to an opening in the bind you've resulted with. Um, so if one party like has if is the person who's attacked for example uh the person who is defended has made a nice parry with the very hilt of their sword the very strong of their sword on the very tip of the opponent's sword then they can very quick they control the sword and can very quickly move to an opening where it's a person who has attacked needs to free their sword and re-establish control to be able to move to an opening again so you end up with a case where if you're trying to the the state of the bind you're in um, helps kind of enforce a degree of turn taking around extension and retraction and strong and weak. Okay. Well, I, I think I think there's like it's worth spelling out to the listeners that there were or still are interpretations of KDF where you want to be in the vor all the time. You want to be attacking. Parrying will get you hit. If you're attacked, then you should counter attack. And this really leads to some not very pretty fencing, doesn't it? Yes. I think that the the, the, the traditional KDF aversion to carrying is results in a really terrible reading of a few specific passages, possibly terrible translations 20 years ago that led to bad readings, but people really misunderstanding the intent of advice like don't parry the way common fencers do. And yeah. extrapolating it to never ever defend yourself, which seems like a inadvisable posture to take. And and my experience has been that the most part of the most difficult bit of training up a fencer is getting them to recognize when they're being attacked and when they need to defend themselves. Right. I think it's also a, a problem that feeds itself in KDF because if you're really bad at parrying and haven't practiced it, then you probably will never see the value in it. I'm going to uh, talk about how, or mention how I uh, resolved that issue that I mentioned before. And it's kind of similar to uh, what T mentioned. So 
T, I think, said um, basically whoever has like there, you know, somebody can have a superior bind at the end, like coming out of you know an attack, and that person um, is going to be more able to attack than the other one. And I, I basically agree with that. Um, so if you're the attacker, your ideal situation is you attack and the other person gets hit, and there's no bind or anything. If you're the person moving second, if you're, um, I guess, the other person's attacking you, your ideal situation is you immediately do a counterattack and, or you know, um, an attack into their attack, and theirs gets blocked and yours hits, and you get a clean hit. But there's a lot of um, space in between that. So say if I attack and my timing was pretty good but not perfect, and I caught my opponent a little bit flat-footed, um, where like they can't move back or anything, but they still get a parry up in the way, then I'm probably okay to go on with you know my my follow-up attack. If I attack and my timing's not so great but not so bad that they immediately counterattack me. And they maybe step back and you know get a get a nice parry off, and there's a good amount of distance. Then I probably shouldn't go for like an immediate follow up attack. I should probably be prepared to to uh, parry their counter attack, and then find another opening to to get my um, I guess to regain the initiative. So that's that's kind of my uh, rough answer, and I hope it follows the. I think it's consistent with the sources. Yeah, the way I'd structure it is basically that in a once you've had an attack and a parry and you have two people in a bind, typically, in almost every case, one of those two people will have a more direct path to a new opening than the other one. Sure. And that person is probably going to be the person who can continue by initiating the next action. Or one person is more in balance than the other. Yeah, or you know, in a better position to to uh, launch an attack, I guess, which is I yeah. guess the same thing as you said. Yeah, I I was a bit more purely physical about it, but yeah, definitely, like somebody can be off balance, or they can be mentally off balance and kind of in a parrying mode, and then even if their parries were really good, they might not be able to make reposts in time. Yeah, if your opponent is is doing like its varicopter on you, you can also assume that they're probably going to continue to do its varicopter, and you know, act accordingly. Yeah, unless they're planning the one of the tour counters. Well, now we're getting a little bit more complicated. We can discuss this in the episode on the tour how. Yeah. yeah. You mean like the five episodes on the tour how? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think there's probably a good point to wrap it up, isn't it? Unless anybody has anything else to add. I have one more comment that's not on this subject. Um, but related to foreign knock um, that I want to just throw out there in the air for anyone listening to this who hasn't taken a look at 3227A in a long time. Um, there's a conventional wisdom out there that that it's very much opposed to the type of fencing described in the RDL glosses based on the, the description of the, the, based on the gloss of the general instructions, the, the Gemeine Lehre. <clears throat> Um, because it has this idea of Vorschlag and Nachschlag as sort of the centerpiece of its treatment of that section. And I think that um, there's a whole lot of translation artifacts that have gone into making that seem like a very different concept. But ultimately, all that's happening in 3227A 
is it's glossing this entire section as a single piece of verse and trying to construct all the pieces of advice that we see in RDL into a single um, tactical paradigm. So instead of breaking it out into six different short lessons, it's combining them all into one longer lesson, but none of it is really con conflicting with anything that we've talked about here in terms of strategy and tactics and so on. Um, and the gloss in 3227A is an interesting perspective on how the different pieces of the general lesson fit together into sort of a kernel of fencing that is that can kind of stand on its own and then gets built on in the rest of the settle and the rest of the class. Great. Thank you very much, Michael. Anybody else? I just wanted to mention my favorite part in, in Yohimaya. I know he's not like one from the earlier masters, um, but he, he talks about Lichtenauer's um, like um, Oh no, he talks about the interpretation of some people of Lichtenauer's um, advice when he says that you're not supposed to, oh no, that you're always supposed to be in the four. Um, and Jochimaya says um, that Lichtenauer does indeed say something like that. Um, but of course, you're allowed to parry and set aside. And Jochimaya says um, that it's no use to. I'm just translating it right now. Um, it's no use to strike at the same time as your opponent, like um, fighting with closed eyes, um, because that's no fencing. Um, it's more of a senseless peasant brawl. And I really like that part. Oh, oh my god, that is, that is some serious shade being thrown there. <laughs> I mean... I don't know about you, but I've definitely fenced people in tournaments where it's been like, oh, whatever I do, you're just going to yell the same thing in response. If this wasn't a, a verbal argument. It's not, there's no interplay. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it's really boring fighting somebody like that. Meyer does throw the best shade sometimes. That's nice. We, we just need to get a pair of sunglasses and a, a big joint going in his mouth when he says that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, um, m thank you very much for that, Johanna. I, th I think my final note to wrap up on would be that if you ever get a chance to fence in a, a right-of-way well-run longsword competition then you should really take it because it is a fun game and it's very educational and i massively enjoyed the paratima open when i was able to fence there i believe the paratima open is now defunct but i will say a very strong word of recommendation for turnhow as well in slovakia yeah Okay, well, thank you very much, everybody. This was our fourth episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host, Michael Smorge, and with me were Johanna Hopf-Gardner, Michael Chidister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you.